You're listening to The China Current with me, James Chow. This week on our videos, we've got Professor Shan Lewin from Melbourne University. She's also the director of the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. We recorded this interview a while back during the International AIDS Conference, but more so it was an opportunity to really get to know her as a person, the person behind the clinician and scientist and activist who is leading the search for an AIDS cure. Professor Lewin has led her laboratory now for more than 20 years. She's a highly published, highly regarded scientist who is often invited to speak about her work and her work particularly on in vitro models of latency, latency reversing agents in clinical trials of cure interventions, how they overlap with cancer immunotherapies, how they overlap with her new work at the Doherty Institute, and what she brings to the fore as a humanitarian. And so speaking of the humanitarian aspect, I wanted to begin this interview not only with the science, but particularly with the person embedded within that. Here's Professor Sharon Lewin at our interview in Amsterdam. Professor Lewin was born in Melbourne, where she continues to live today. She's the mother of three, two adult sons, and one West Highland Terrier <laughs> called Minty, who I know is very important to you. We're speaking at the International AIDS <laughs> Conference in Amsterdam. Professor Lewin, you're laughing. <laughs> I like the way Minty's been counted as what, as I always wanted a daughter, you see. So having Minty and now officially recognised as one of my children is fantastic. Yeah. I've had the great privilege of meeting <laughs> Minty and also your husband, Bob, who's sitting a little bit to our left <laughs> over here. Um, and also the great privilege of being at your home, which I remember to be on a quiet residential street and these wonderful, tall, I think, fir trees outside. That's right. There's a little gate <laughs> and then a narrow pathway which has little stones, I think, or stone features leading down that path towards this Victorian, I think, facade. Right. Yeah. And I just wonder sometimes, do you think the neighbours know what you're up to, that you're transforming humanity? <laughs> no, they're just worried about why, you know, I haven't taken the rubbish bins in or something like that, probably. They don't know, do they? <laughs> no, we don't speak to them often. <laughs> you don't speak to them often. That's the, the one particularly intriguing quality that I've always found in you as a person, is that you speak so rarely of your own achievements or you don't speak of your achievements at all unless we happen to be engaged in a serious conversation on public health but particularly around the fight against HIV and AIDS. How did that begin and what was childhood like for you? Well when I was um, at school I was really into the physical sciences, loved maths and physics and uh, wanted to be an astronaut or an engineer. So I actually had no interest at all in medicine. But my parents thought mm, being an engineer, not a good career um, for a nice Jewish girl from Melbourne and encouraged me to do medicine. Uh, and I, but I, of course, was always very interested in, in people and always really enjoyed um, and, and you know, enjoy, enjoyed that sort of social aspect of, of medicine and, and, and role in people's lives. So as I, once I started, started studying medicine, I actually grew to really love the clinical side of it, but then I always had this curiosity about how things work. Previously more about you know, physics and maths, but then that became how things work 
in the world of infectious diseases. So that's really how I landed up doing both clinical medicine and, and research. How does someone who has developed a career in AIDS specifically, how does that articulate itself in a child of say 10 or 12 years old? I, at 10 or 12, I don't think I, uh, I, as I, I loved school and I loved learning. I don't think I ever thought I'd be working on something. In fact, when I started medicine, I started medicine in 1981, HIV was not even known about. You know, the first cases of AIDS were in 1981, discovered, the virus was discovered in 1983, and the test for HIV in 1985. So, when I started medicine, I didn't even know HIV existed. But that was the exact year. So you started university in September 1981? At January, in February 1981, Southern Hemisphere. So they started in February, the, yes, the, yeah. the academic year. Yeah. So it was three months because it was June 1981 when the Sense of Disease Control Journal, I think it was, That's right. reported, I think it was maybe five cases of um, what was uh, then an unusual cancer in gay men in New York, Carposi's sarcoma, an unusual pneumonia in, um, in uh, gay men in Los Angeles. When did you first hear about it? Was it that year or was it much later? Yeah, I've often thought about this. I don't think I would have thought about HIV until about 1985, which was when uh, the test became available. And actually, I had a tutor at university who I liked very much. And um, I, he was the first person I ever knew who was HIV positive. And actually, by that stage, there were already cases of AIDS in Australia. And so as a medical student, 1985, I was already doing clinical medicine. Those, we, I, you know, became aware of people that were dying from HIV. But I don't think I had thought about it until 1985. Just to put that on a time scale, 1985 being four whole years after those first cases were reported formally, and by that time, millions of people had now been impacted in some shape or form, that people were saying they were spending their weekends or their days off work going to the funerals of their own friends, and yet at the same time, there was this complete absent political leadership in the United States, which was the epicenter of this in the beginning, even though we now see AIDS as being strongly associated with sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. Ronald Reagan was silent, completely silent. And if I'm correct, I don't think he mentioned the word AIDS publicly until 86 after the death of his friend, Rock Hudson. For you, what moved you? Because he could have moved into many different areas of medicine or science that were very important as well? Mm. Um, I think I liked the mix of uh, the unknown. There was all this information that was rapidly changing, both in the clinical context and in the um, world of science and then in the, and in the political aspect. So it was a period of rapid change, which greatly interested me. Um, there was the whole social context of HIV and the um, people that were uh, largely affected by the virus, which in Australia at the time was really men who have sex with men. Um, and then all this incredible change in science, you know, from discovering that it was a viral disease, a test to diagnose it, and then all the efforts to 
understand why it made people sick and then discovering new drugs, etc. So it was such a period of great change. And actually, even without HIV, I always had this interest in infectious diseases. I liked... Um, I've always just had an interest in the, in the larger world. I also spent a year working in Kenya in 1989. I uh, had graduated two years before, so I'd worked for two years as a doctor before I went to Kenya. So when I was in Kenya, I got a... It was the, the epidemic there was really just unfolding. Um, a lot of people, there was enormous stigma. People didn't want to get tested, and there was probably a lot more people there with HIV than we even knew about. But um, I think that time also, I realised, got a sense of the scale of what this was going to be like. And also I worked in a small, <clears throat> very small mission hospital in the middle of nowhere, uh, in we, Kenya. In Kenya. That two, well, not, it was two hours outside Nairobi. Um, very few resources. And as much as I enjoyed it, I realised this is not the environment that I could work in long term, but yet I wanted to make a contribution to those, um, to the issues that were faced by people living in that environment. So that's sort of what made me come back and think about specialising in infectious diseases and then doing research. I'm trying to delve into what a young person would have been experiencing at that time. And I'm just wondering as well, traveling so far away from home and with your work really delving into what was still very much the unknown and what was largely associated with death. What did your parents feel and were they expressive of their support in any way? Um, I think they didn't really understand why I'd want to go and work in, you know, Africa, I guess. Um, but they were never negative about it. My parents were always very supportive about what... The only thing they didn't want me to do was become an engineer, I think, at, at the, when I was 18 and really encouraged me to do medicine. But since that time, my parents have always just been very supportive of whatever I wanted to do. I described you at the beginning of this conversation as a clinician scientist and I would like to add the third word which is activist uh, because you're one of the few people I can think of Peter Piot and I can think of Francoise Barasanussi who co-discovered HIV back in 1983 as you said they have that ability to communicate very complex uh, concepts around what you're doing to a much wider audience and science is the core of the response, but at the same time, it's unrelatable for a lot of people. What do you try to do in terms of connecting to community, connecting to the people whom you say that you've always loved, um, to allow them to understand what you're still trying to understand as well? Yeah, I mean, I've had a really strong interest in that, and uh, I think my work as a clinician has really helped, because when you work as a doctor, you often have to explain very complex issues around diagnoses, treatment options, interpreting tests to a whole range of different patients, from people with minimal education who may not even have English as a first language to very sophisticated, um, well-read patients. So I think I've always done that in medicine. Most doctors, it's a core part of what you do. And I just use those same principles in science. So really try and think and the more I do it and the more I do speak about science with community it improves the 
the clarity of your message because you really get to understand what confuses people and what is an easier concept to grasp. So it, it, I think it improves me. It improves my work as a scientist. You go once a week still to the Alfred in Melbourne to see and treat your patients over there. And I understand that some of them you've seen for years already. Mm. That must be a testament to the progression of treatment for HIV and people living with HIV. It couldn't have been like that in the beginning when you began. Mm. No, the, the changes have been um, extraordinary. Who would have thought most people that um, I've met, uh, you know, effective antiviral therapy became widely available in the mid-90s. And um, so most of the people that I care for have had access to those treatments, but to now be taking treatments that are better and better, less toxic, often just one tablet a day, um, having very normal lives, no one would have ever imagined that was going to be possible. Looking forward, where's the leadership going to come from? Because the 1980s, I've always seen it, broadly speaking, the 1980s being the emergency that was... Uh, the immense weights of people not surviving, the incredibly sad stories of families torn apart, communities ravaged, and then into the 90s where hope began to reveal itself, and then the 2000s where that started really getting into some motion, at least for people with access in high and middle income countries. Is there a danger that we just fall off and we say, well, you know, it's fine. Because I hear it all the time where people say, well, that's, AIDS is fine now, isn't it? You can live until the age of, of 70s or 80s, so there's nothing to worry about anymore. But that, am I right, is not the problem. The complacency that that encourages then encourages people to believe that it's fixed, it's solved, and that there's nothing else left to do. Yeah, I think although we've had these great advances, it's important to remind ourselves that still half the world can't access treatment, which means that you can still die of AIDS and we have a million deaths a year of AIDS and 1.8 million new HIV infections each year and probably only 60% of people on treatment. So many people haven't enjoyed these advances at all. And I, it, actually at the conference here, there, there we released... Um, a new paper for which I was a co-author on um, on uh, the Lancet International AIDS Society Commission talking about what we need to be doing in the future of the HIV response. And a few um, key messages from that were now's not the time to reduce funding because the successes that we have will be rapidly lost if we invest less in HIV. Um, that we haven't, re re we're not on track to reach the targets we thought we would reach. But meaning 500,000, um, less than 500,000 new infections and less than 500,000 deaths by 2020. We're not near that. Um, and that a model for the future would be, would be different. We should always be thinking of doing things better and differently. And the model of the future is really about integration and integrating HIV into other, other um, programs and services. So I think we, uh, we do need to, to continually evolve and change the way we do things and now's probably a time where we'll start to see that happen. You're doing incredible work. You have applied cancer therapies to help you progress your search for an AIDS cure. 
How does that work? In what aspect of immunotherapy has allowed you to do that? Well, both cancers and viruses are cleared by your immune system, um, and uh, part of your immune system is called killer T cells. T, um, your T cells, or part of your immune system that recognises something foreign and goes in and eliminates it. And we've known for a long time in HIV that your killer T cells don't function properly. Over the last five or so years, there's been these new treatments for cancer that boost your killer T cell function and they, they work really well in some cancers. Now we call that immunotherapy. One of the more common immunotherapy is something called anti-PD-1. People may have heard of that. Um, and we propose, we and others, that um, those same drugs could be very effective in eliminating the last bits of HIV that persist in people on treatment, that if you could boost up those killer T cells to go out and hunt the last bits of HIV, we may potentially help us come towards a day, one day, when we may have a cure or could safely stop treatment. That was the first part of my interview with Professor Shan Lewin. You can join us again at the same time next week when we'll bring you the remainder of that interview. And as always, we've got videos on our social media across all of our platforms. So like, follow and subscribe at The China Current.